0: I wonder if you've dug any, done any digging lately. If you've done any digging lately, I remember uh, back at the old parsonage, we put in a fence uh, along the road, a split rail fence, and uh, my previous experience uh, digging post holes was in the state of Florida, and I'm not sure there's a rock in the state of Florida. It's all just sand, and so you know it's hard work because it's hot and it's humid. But you just you know you get that post hole digger and you just go to town. It's not it's not that uh, tough in that sense. Uh, I remember when my father-in-law helping me dig that, those holes. Well, over here at the Parsonage, of course, we're dangerously close to the town of Rockaway. And uh, there's a reason why they call it that, you know, there's, there's a lot of rocks there. And so uh, some of you uh, beloved Jersey, Jersey boys laughed at my optimism at how, how quick it would go to dig these post holes. And sure enough, it was a bit of a challenge, right, digging those holes. Man, we worked hard that day, uh, but we did get it done. Of course, when I was a little kid, uh, I did some digging that got me into trouble. I know I've told you this story before, but at our home, I, I wish I was younger than I actually was when this was happening. But anyway, uh, I'll tell the story. We've started now. But we, were, we dug in, like, an underground fort in our backyard where we dug this massive hole. We put a sheet of 4 by 8 plywood over it to, like, cover it. And then we were, like, digging tunnels out for trying to, you know, get other rooms and everything. I mean, it was sophisticated. We had, we had you know, read too many weird books. Anyway, uh, you know, we, we were into that. And so, uh, and we took the dirt. And I don't know why we did this, but we didn't just pile it up. We, like, spread it all over the property like we were trying to hide it or something. So that when we moved out of the house, my parents actually had to buy a truck of dirt to come in and fill this hole. And I got in trouble. Uh, Yeah, for that. Sometimes digging can get you into trouble, and that was the case with Israel here in Jeremiah 2. The prophet Jeremiah uses digging as a negative illustration. But in this passage, we see not only a condemnation of Israel's pursuit of other gods, but we also see a picture of who God really is. You know, as we come to a passage like this, there's historical value in it for us, of course. There is a clear understanding of the nature of sin. We need to talk about that, and we will this morning. But don't miss the fact that this passage is designed also to give us eternal hope in the character of God. So I don't know what it is that you're facing this morning, but I do know that a passage like this comes at just the right time. We need to think about not just how we struggle, but how good our sweet God is. Now, the context in Jeremiah 2 is this. Jeremiah is the prophet ministering at the end of the southern kingdom's existence. So he's kind of the one nursing Israel along spiritually or nursing Judah along spiritually before they will go into exile. So he had a tough assignment in so many ways. And in some of his messages, and especially here in chapter 2, God through him, as the prophet, remember the prophet is the spokesman for God with the people, right? God through Jeremiah comes and he actually presents what's basically a formal courtroom accusation. He brings a spiritual case Against the people of Judah. And that terminology is used here. In fact. In this picture. Right. Where God has called the court into session. He is the judge. And the prosecutor. And he calls witnesses. We'll talk about the heavens as a witness. In just a few minutes. So he's, he said. Listen. You've got to listen up. Because you are being accused. Oh Judah. You are being accused. Of wrongdoing in the sight of God. And so it's an intense moment here. As the prophet presents this accusation against Israel. Let's pick it up. Excuse me. Against Judah. Let's pick it up in verse 9. And as we do so, we just also should acknowledge that part of the problem is that God has been so good to Israel in their past. And He actually refers to that in the beginning of the chapter how He was faithful to them in the wilderness, how He rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And yet, what had they done? in return watch verse 9 here as we get into the meat of this passage there in verse 9 Jeremiah 2 he writes therefore in light of this problem of God's goodness being shown to Israel and yet they've turned on him therefore he says I will bring a case against you again the Lord says I bring another accusation against you this is the Lord's declaration I will bring a case against your children's children it's a persistent problem being handed down from generation to generation and it's shocking. To Jeremiah, verse 10, he says, cross over to the coasts of Cyprus and take a look. Send someone to Kedar and consider carefully. See if there's ever been anything like this. The prophet says, scour the internet for, for examples. Travel to the farthest reaches and see if you've ever heard of this particular circumstance. What is he talking about? Well, watch verse 11. He explains, has a nation ever exchanged its gods? Uh, just pause right there in the middle of verse 11. You got to know this. In ancient and Eastern cultures, their gods were basically their national mascots, okay? They prayed to a particular set of gods or a particular favored group of gods out of the Canaanite pantheon. So they had a lot to choose from. Uh, most of the gods had uh, similarities in their mythologies. But they usually had special names for gods in each nation. And sometimes they picked specific gods out of the broader group of Canaanite gods and goddesses. So, you know, you have this nation worships Milcom, and this worships Dagon, and this one worships, uh, you know, uh, El, and this one worships Asherah, and, and all these different circumstances. So the nations have their gods. So that's, that's the kind of the, the premise or the basis of this shocking development. He says in verse 11, has a nation ever changed its gods? This has never happened in recorded history, at least in the ancient Near Eastern world, where a nation met together, and they said, you know what? Like, Milcom's not really doing it for us. Let's switch out. Let's switch from Milcom, okay, to Dagon. And if you know that, that would actually be an upgrade. But if you're up on the Canaanite, not really. Anyway, all right. So... But that never happened. There was never a case where these ancient or eastern peoples got together. And they said, you know what? Our gods, they're not good enough. They're not. Let's sub them out. Let's change our gods for other gods that do better. They never do that. They're always consistent with their gods. This is shocking. Watch verse 11. Why? He says, has a nation ever exchanged its gods? Well, no, they never do. He says, but they were not gods. He's like, they're not even real. They're not actually gods, and yet they're loyal to them. They're passionate about their Dagon and their Milcom. They're they're passionate about their Moat and their Yam and their El and all these Canaanite deities. They're passionately committed to them. They never exchange their gods. He says, look, travel the world. You'll see it. Verse 11, yet my people have exchanged their glory for useless idols. Here's the the accusation. The people of Israel, especially Judah in this context, they had looked at the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh, the God revealed to us in the Bible. They looked at God and they said, you know what? We can do better. And they had exchanged him for, in verse 11's terminology, useless idols. Notice a couple of details here about verse 11. Of course, it, he says, Yet my people have exchanged their glory. You need to know that, grammatically speaking, the phrase my people is emphatic. It's put there for emphasis. God is saying, It is crazy to think that my people would do this. But my people have exchanged, have replaced, and he doesn't say their God. If you're reading closely in your Bibles in verse 11, he doesn't say they exchanged their God for useless idols. What word does your Bible have there? They exchanged their what? Their glory. The CSB, I think, has it capitalized, which is right. It should be capitalized here. They have exchanged their glory for useless idols. Why not say God? Why say glory? Because the word glory, in this context, in Jeremiah 2, it means value or weight or worth. And what, what Jeremiah is saying is that in God, in worshiping the true God who is... Israel has access to genuine, real, eternal value. They've got access to worth. They have greatness insofar as they are connected to the God who is. God is their greatness. God is their value. God determines their worth. And so he is their glory. They don't glory in and of themselves. They find glory only in their God who has provided for them, who has delivered them. That's in the context of Jeremiah 2. He's already talked about it, how he's delivered them and rescued them. He says, and then it's crazy because these pagan nations, they're so loyal to their gods that aren't even real. And yet my people who worship the real deal, who by virtue of being in relationship to me, have access to eternal value and meaning. They have access to the blessings and privileges of of being worshipers of the God who is, of being in the family, so to speak. They have this, and yet they have exchanged that for what? For useless idols. False gods that can't deliver. Another confession from when I was younger. I have one brother. My brother Blake is four years younger than me. He's the worst. Anyway, uh, so he... When he was younger, and I was old enough to discern the value of baseball cards, and baseball card trading was a big thing uh, back in my day, and so I was old enough to discern the value of baseball cards. I used to get the Beckett Monthly. And you'd have to get this magazine, you'd have to buy this magazine that would tell you how much the cards were worth. But my brother Blake, who didn't have a lot of interest in baseball and certainly couldn't really understand the value of the cards themselves, like he was, he was happy if they were all on the same team or they were all the same color, you know, other really important things, but that didn't affect the value. Anyway, so like any true older brother would, I full-on took advantage of my brother's ignorance and would trade I would say, I will give you 10 cards for that one card. Right, And I would take advantage of the fact that he didn't understand that the exchange he was you know, going to be making with me was that he was going to lose out big time on value, and I was going to make the big bucks. And to this day, I still have those cards. It was a fair trade. It was legal. All right? And I stand by... No. It was a ridiculous exchange. And the truth is, I got busted for it by my folks and had to give them, had to give them back. Praise the Lord. Okay, there it was. Sometimes, isn't that what we're doing, though? We have glory in God Almighty. We have eternal value and worth and meaning in God, and yet we're like trading baseball cards, and we're going to substitute in these other worthless gods. Let's not call them idols here. Let's call them pursuits, all right? Right, these other avenues where we think, this is going to give my life meaning. This is going to make me satisfied. This is going to give me satisfaction. Right? This is going to give me purpose. Or this is going to you know, make me feel at peace. And yet, all the while, what is it? It is a shocking exchange. A tragic exchange. Why? Because God is our glory. God gives us value and worth. And so you need to ask the question this morning, wait a minute, I know I'm not worshiping Canaanite gods and goddesses, but to what or to whom am I most loyal? I mean, these nations were were loyal to their gods that weren't gods. Well, the same question could be posed to us. What are we loyal to that we think this is it? I've got to stay with this. It's the money. If I just have enough money, then I will be valuable. And then I will have success. If I just had this job, then I will make it. If I just had this particular pleasure, if I just had this level at work, if I just got these grades at school, whatever it is, right? I've got to have this. And so, well, the question is, to what are we most loyal? Because at the end of the day, we will struggle to be loyal to things other than God. There's there's an important recognition here that we, if we're followers of Jesus, we are his people. And his people should never make this exchange. But we do. We struggle. There's a clear example of this in Israel's history in Exodus 32. And Jeremiah refers to it in the previous verses. I'm just going to summarize it for you, though. You remember that God rescued the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And God led them right out of slavery, miraculously showing his power over the so-called God's of Egypt. And remember the plagues? The plagues were all designed to prove the existence and, and superiority of the God of Israel to the so-called gods of Egypt. So it was like a master class in just, there's only one God, and it's not any of the gods of Egypt, right? So he rescues his people out, proving that he is a lone God. He, uh, he leads them triumphantly, even as they're not, they're not equipped for battle. He leads them in successful battles, so to speak, against the Egyptian army, right? When he brings them across the Reed Sea on dry land, and then Pharaoh's army comes across, and God causes those waters to fall back on the Egyptian army and wipes them out. Again, just showing his divine power and his provision for his people where he's rescuing them. And then he's leading them through the wilderness and they get to the mountain, Mount Sinai, where they're going to meet with God, this God who has rescued them. And he's going to make a covenant with them and and enter into his relationship with them. It's kind of like the marriage ceremony of their relationship with God. And Moses goes up on the mountain and Moses has taken a long time up on the mountain to come back with the word from God, right with this message. And while Moses is gone, you remember what the people asked Aaron to do? Make us gods, they said. Here, we'll give you. They give all their jewelry. And stuff. Make us gods. And Aaron tragically does just what they asked. And the problem with Jeremiah, too, is he's like, it's not like their deliverance from Egypt was generations past. It was like two months ago that God had rescued them out of Egypt. And here they're asking for other gods, exchanging their glory for worthless idols. I wonder, what are ways that God has shown his faithfulness to you in the past? Ways that he's proven that he's the real deal. Ways that he's proven that he loves and cares for you. Not in that he always gives you what you want the most, but that he has provided for you and that he is leading and guiding you. I mean, we, we might go, okay, this is really intense. I get it. Courtroom scene and the whole idolatry deal. I get it. It's like, for them, it would have been a really big deal. But come on, Pastor Ryan, is this really that big of a deal for us? Is it really something that we struggle with? What's so bad about a little pursuit of money here or a little pursuit of, of fame or, or acceptance by friends there or pursuit of this or that? Like, is it really that damaging? Isn't that kind of our culture's attitude? As long as it doesn't really hurt anybody, it should be okay, Right? It is not okay. And watch what Jeremiah does in verse 13, as, or verse 12, actually, as he calls the witnesses, right, to, to give their uh, testimony. In verse 12, he says, Be appalled at this, heavens. Be shocked and utterly desolated. This is the Lord's declaration. So when God calls the court into session, he also calls witnesses. Who does he call his witnesses? He calls the heavens, the sky. Why does he call the sky to be the witnesses? Because everything that happens, happens under the sky, right? And so he's kind of like, okay, who was there? Okay, the sky was there. All right, let's call the heavens to witness. And then in the calling to witness, he calls the the witnesses to affirm the shocking and tragic nature of this exchange. So be appalled at this, O heavens. How would the heavens be appalled? By drying up. Be shocked and utterly desolated. Dry up, heavens, over this. This is so shocking, Affirm, witness, testify, O heavens. This is so shocking, right? How could they have done that? At what? Well, what's the specific issue at hand? It's not just idolatry in general. Notice, it's the nature of it. Verse 13, and this is where he explains it. He says, For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, let's unpack this just for a minute, okay? He says, my people have committed a double evil. There's, there's two parts to the sin equation here in our hearts when we choose to follow worthless idols, when we exchange the glory of God for something else. The first part of the evil is that we abandon God. So rejecting God is the first problem. They have abandoned me, God says, which that in and of itself is enough. But notice how God chooses to describe himself. And this is where we get hints of hope and this little, this little picture of what God can be for us, right? When we're faithful, when we, when we turn to him. He says, they have abandoned me. And then how does he describe himself? The fountain of living water. Okay, the fountain of living water. Now let's talk about this image. First of all, we need to talk about the water situation in the Middle East. So um, when you consider the archaeology of the Middle East, when you're studying these ancient people groups, There were no settlements in the Middle East, especially in Israel, where there is no water, okay? If they can't get water, they can't live. And so because the Middle East is dry, perpetually dry, all right? And because water is so precious, even to this day, it's a major political issue in uh, Israel, between Israel and Jordan, their neighbor, about how much water they can use from the Jordan River and all of this, right? Because water is so precious. So there's not a ton of water. So water is precious. Now, when God describes himself as the fountain of living water, don't think of like uh, fountains in front of fancy buildings, okay? Like that kind of a deal, all right? He's talking about a spring, a naturally occurring spring in the ground. And the miracle of this... In, in the ancient or in the Middle East, is when you have a, a spring where groundwater, underground water, is just bubbling up all the time, you have an endless supply of provision for your animals, for your crops, and for your family. That's why everywhere there was a spring, there was a city, because there was water there. Right? And so when you go and travel, if you have the uh, privilege of traveling to Israel and going to see these ancient settlements, oftentimes you'll go underground because time has passed and things have been built over. But you can go underground and you can see there's still water here because the spring is still working. So living water here is a reference to a perpetual provision of spring water. Like that's the image. It is, it is a, an extremely positive image of God as the provider and sustainer of life as the spring of water, right? So good. That's the picture. And God says, here's the first problem with idolatry. You reject me. You reject me, and I am the one who provides you with everything. I am the fountain of living water. I'm the one who has given in the past. Remember the exodus? Remember the wilderness? Remember that time in your family when God, did. remember when you were struggling with that and God did, right? Remember those circumstances? God says, I'm the one that's provided in the past. I'm the one that's going to provide for you today. And I'm the one that's going to provide for you in the future. I am the fountain of living water, he says. And it is shocking. Be appalled, oh heavens, that people would look at me and my infinitely beautiful character and say, you know what? We can do better. We can do better. And we don't ever think that usually we don't think it outright, but in our behavior, we, be, we betray that we believe that, that we can do better. Rejecting God is the first part of this equation. Rejecting God as the fountain of living water. I should also just remind you here that when he says they have abandoned me, again, in the original, the word me is the first word in that sentence. Me, they have abandoned. It's shocking. How could they abandon me? How could they forsake me? How could they turn their back on me when I have given them everything? And I am the fountain, he says. It's shocking. I wonder if we're not shocked enough at the times we turn our back on God. It doesn't bother us. I mean, everybody else is doing it. So we've grown maybe complacent. We've turned our back on God, the fountain of living water. We've rejected him God had given them food in in the desert. He had guided them in the desert. He gave them water in the desert. He was a sustainer of their crops. He protected them from enemies. He had rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And yet they turned their back on him. What about you? God's given you a place to live. He's provided you with the finances you have to buy food, to to have clothing, right? To live the life that you're living. He gives you gas in that car to get you to work. He provides even the economy for you to have a job, to function, and all of that. God has provided for us and seeing us through challenging times. His greatest act of provision for us is seen as Jesus took on flesh, died for our sins, and rose from the dead. And so we have the provision of spiritual life forever. This is what God has done for us as the fountain of living water. And yet we turn our back on him. We turn away. What do we do then? Part two. He says, They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves. Ah, the Israelites, they're digging, right? They dug cisterns for themselves. So what's a cistern? So the Middle East, you don't have a lot of water. You need water. It's not brain surgery. It did rain from time to time, especially in the winter, this rainy season, right? And so there's an opportunity there to collect water, to save it for future needs. And so what they would do is they would uh, dig out these underground water storage tanks, cisterns, all right? They would, uh, they would actually plaster them so that they would, they would hold water and, and kind of keep it, you know, f- over time. That way, when there, wasn't, when there was a drought, when they didn't have provision, they could go to the cistern. They could get what they needed in their times of, of need. They could get the water they needed for their crops or for their animals or even for their own family. So they've got these existing underground cisterns that they have dug and created, right? So... Get the, get the image. Israel's turned their back on God, who is a fountain, always providing water. And they've said, you know what? We're going to do one better. We're going to dig a cistern. And so they dig. They dig this cistern. And then they, they plaster it up. They get it all ready to go, right? Except there's one problem. Notice the end of verse 13. They've abandoned me, the fountain of living water, they dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. There's your idol. They dig the cistern. This is going to satisfy me when I'm in need. This is what's going to provide when I'm struggling. This is what's going to give me peace. They dig the cistern. At the bottom of the cistern, there's a crack, which means all the water that goes into that cistern, where is it going? Right into the ground. And so when it comes time for them to get water for the crops, when it comes time for them and there's a drought and they need provision and they're thirsty... And maybe their survival is even at stake. They go to the cistern that they've worked hard to dig, that they've invested energy in, and what do they find, theologians, when they get to that cistern? They find nothing because they're useless idols. Have you done any digging lately? Have you invested time and energy in cultivating your love for something else over and against your love for God? Are you banking on something else to give you meaning instead of God? See, the idolatry question, there's there's two parts to it. The first part is rejecting God, but the second part is then replacing God. Rejecting God and then replacing God. And when we replace God, what happens is we go to these other, again, pursuits, these other interests, right? And we go to them in our time of need and we find nothing. So, you know, it's like Elijah versus the prophets and priests of Baal back in 1 Kings. I mean, not to go back over the whole story, but we remember this confrontation, and the Lord had sent a time of drought as judgment for Israel's sin and as a wake-up call spiritually. Baal, the Canaanite god Baal, was supposedly the storm god who could literally make it rain. That's one of his things. And so... Elijah says, okay, let's go to war, Uh, and he has the big prophetic showdown, and the whole, you remember the whole dramatic scene where they're dancing, they're singing, they're cutting themselves, doing all their ceremonies, and they cannot get Baal to wake up, which in Canaanite mythology, he's either uh, being held captive by the god Moat, or he's lost somewhere, or he's like buried at the bottom of the sea, which is Yom. So you have to like do these rituals to get mote or Yom, to release Baal. So you can, I mean, you know, that's too much information. I know, don't worry. Anyway, the point is they can't get Baal to make it rain. You can't get him to, to prove his existence by shooting lightning down and, and consuming that, that offering. So then Elijah prays. And what does God do? He sends the lightning down, proving he's there. He's the the real storm god, right? If you want to really get technical about it. But then he sends the lookout up to the top of the hill to look out over the Mediterranean. And what does he see over the Mediterranean? He sees thunderclouds because God was making it rain. I mean, it's this deal where we replace God with these false gods who can't do anything for us. And if you think the money will satisfy you, you are wrong. And if we believe that having that ultimate job or living in that ultimate neighborhood or driving that ultimate car or whatever it is, that that's going to finally make us go, ah, I'm here. We are wrong. Those are broken cisterns that can't hold water. So better than rejecting God or replacing God, the alternative is to find our satisfaction in God. To love and pursue God over and above everything else. So ask the question, where do you turn for satisfaction when your soul is thirsty? When you're struggling, where do you go? And to answer that, you might just think of it in terms of like this sentence. I just need, and then fill in the blank, right? You've had a rough day, okay? Rough week, whatever. I just need blank. If I just had more money, I wouldn't be so frustrated. If I just could have a beer or three or seven, then I would be fine, right? If I could just lose 10 pounds, I would be better. If I could just have that high, it would be better. If I could just, if I could just watch the game in peace, then I would be be better. If I could just, if I just had that ice cream, right, it'd be better. If I could just beat that newest game, right, if I could just immerse myself in that and find satisfaction in that, or top the charts in that online game, or if I just could finally get married, or or finally have sex, or finally have those kids, or if I could just have the, the clothes that I really want, or whatever it is, right, there's all these things. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, They're broken cisterns. They're not inherently evil. Think about it. There's nothing inherently wrong with wood or stone. But it's when wood and stone gets crafted into the shape of a false god that we're in trouble. There's nothing wrong with a job. There's nothing wrong with getting good grades. There's nothing wrong with money. But the problem is when we turn it into our god. I mean, has the nation ever exchanged its gods? They're not even gods. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. So what, how do you answer that question? I just need. Because our souls do get thirsty. And it would be, you know, it would be naive for us not to acknowledge that, right? Where we go through times of, of drought and struggle where we need spiritual sustenance. The fact is we need sustenance every day. This is why it was so remarkable that Jesus, in his ministry, he snuck into a he snuck into a, a celebration in Jerusalem. I don't know if you remember this, this is in John 7. He tells everybody, I'm not going to the Feast of Tabernacles. But then he goes to the Feast of Tabernacles, like kind of under the radar, right? And there's a lot of drama there because he wasn't ready to go to the cross yet. It wasn't time. And so that's why he didn't go announced. Anyway, he gets there. But then it gets to the high point of the feast. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles is the feast celebrating God rescuing Israel through their time in the wilderness. And a key part of God's deliverance of, and by the way, so they, they make tents and they all live in tents for a week to commemorate that time. Some of you are like, that would be awesome. Others of us are like, no, what? Anyway, so that's, that's what they would do. Well, a big part of God's provision in the wilderness was not just their shelter, but was, in fact, the provision of water. And so at a high point in the feast, the, the priests would gather with the people, a massive crowd there at the temple, and they would pour out this water out of this jug as a symbol reminding the people of God's provision of water for them in the wilderness, right? And so it's at that moment, the Apostle John tells us, the high point of the feast, it's at that moment where Jesus stands up. And says, hey, if anybody is thirsty, come to me and drink. What a moment. Because there Jesus is saying, I am the fountain of living waters. And if you come to me, I will give you access to that water all the time. That fountain will be flowing within you, Jesus says, as a work of his spirit. What a moment. Because we are thirsty people. We're people who have needs spiritually. We need to say no to those idols. We need to fight against temptation. And sometimes we're just struggling because it's been hard. And the family situation is bad. Or the work situation is this. Or the, the politics are going crazy. Or this and the economy and the job. Or all that stuff. And as that's weighing us down and as we get thirsty, the question is, where are we going to go? Are we going to go to the broken cistern? Which cannot provide... Or will we turn to Jesus? Because if there's one thing we learn about the character of God in this passage, it is that God is the only source of lasting satisfaction. God is the only source of lasting satisfaction. These false gods, the deal is like they can, they can bring you temporary satisfaction. That's why they're a temptation. Because for a minute, it might feel better. And for a minute, it might seem like, oh, hey, this is working. But of course, in the end, they can't, they can't provide ultimately. And so Jeremiah says, Israel, you got to learn this, that when you worship a false god, you are exchanging the glory of God for a useless idol. And when you do that, you're saying no to the fountain of living waters, and you are setting yourself up for spiritual disaster. God is the only source of lasting satisfaction. By the way, this explains indirectly why when we are struggling with temptation— We feel like we're far from God. It's because we have actually pushed God away. You have that feeling like, I just feel far from God. I'm struggling with this or that. And often it's directly related to the fact that we have said no to the fountain of living water and we're chasing a broken cistern. We're investing in that. So what does God do for us? Well, he sustains the universe. So there's that, right? (laughs) He provides the very air we breathe. He protects our lives and grants us provision according to his will. He meets our needs, and I know, I know if you're here, you can look back at a time in your life when you were in need and God met that need unexpectedly. And that's just God saying, don't forget, I'm the fountain. He's revealed himself to us in his word. As we said, he's provided salvation in Jesus, demonstrating that he's not only all-powerful and infinitely wise, but he is eternally good. What is not to love about that? He's all powerful. He's eternally wise and he's infinitely good. He's the fountain of living waters. Stop digging cisterns. You don't need them. Stop digging the cistern. Some of you are here this morning and you know right now, you know what cistern you're struggling with. Like you know that's it. And I would just encourage you to not candy coat it. You call that what it is. It's a false God. And you need to ask the question, "How can I stop digging that cistern? How do I say no to that temptation? And you might need help in that. And so we would love to help you with that. Reach out to one of the pastors, absolutely. Find a brother or sister in the church that you trust and get alongside them and say, "Hey, I need help with this, but whatever you're doing, stop digging the cistern." But the other side of stopping digging the cistern is also saying yes to the fountain of living water. Drink from the fountain. Jesus said it, if you are thirsty, come to me and drink. It's not enough just to say no to the cistern. And just as a, maybe a note here, oftentimes, especially in serious churches where people are serious about the Bible, we end up stuck in this this place where we've defined our spirituality by saying no to things. I'm spiritual because I don't cuss. I'm spiritual because I don't have premarital sex. I'm spiritual because I don't do this and don't do that. And while we should say no to those false gods and find our meaning in those, absolutely, right? Those are, that's good and, and true on the one hand. On the other hand, that's only half the story. Because this equation, defining your spirituality by just what you won't do, right? That's not going to ev- satisfy you. Because basically that's just kind of a, a performance thing. Well, it's not just saying no to digging a cistern. It's saying yes to the fountain, Say, yes, I will drink from the fountain by reading God's word, by talking about it seriously with others, by singing God's praise, by praying for others, by praying for my circumstance, by engaging in the life of the church. I'm going to drink from the fountain. And my good friend, Jonathan Edwards, he said that when you drink from the fountain, guess what? The fountain gets glory. He said, God is this eternal fountain, taking right out of Jeremiah 2. God is this eternal fountain of living water. And, and the water has, has spilled over the borders of the the water of the fountain. And so now it's, it's running through the streets, he says. And when it runs by your house, when you drink and take sustenance from that fountain, guess what? God gets glory and you get provision. It's what we call in the business a win-win, right? It's a win-win. God shows his greatness and we get satisfaction. And so sometimes it means we say no to a false god. Like particularly with like finding comfort in, you know, alcohol. I'm going to get drunk. I'm going to forget my problems. I'm going to medicate myself, right? And, and solve the problem that way. So when we drink from the fountain, we say, Lord, these are the problems I'm facing. And instead of seeking refuge in alcohol, I'm going to seek refuge in you, right? So now we're saying, no, we're, we're, I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to be satisfied in Jesus, or it might be like with money, Lord, I've been, I've been finding my value in my, in my bank account or my status at work or whatever, my earning scale. And so, Lord, I'm saying no to that. And now what I'm saying is, Lord, I have value in you. Jesus died for my sins. I know I have value in your sight because Jesus' love for me was made clear in his death on my behalf and his resurrection. And so, Lord, I find that I have value in you, which means, yes, I still earn money, but I look at it differently, Right? That's what we're talking about when we're saying we drink from the fountain. So stop digging, yes, but start drinking from the fountain. Come to the source. God is our only source of lasting satisfaction. And when we treat him like that, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, our perspective changes. This is the battle we're waging every day. It's the battle that you're going to fight tomorrow. Tomorrow. When you go to work or you go to school or, or, well, I guess it's Labor Day. Nobody's going to work or school. Tuesday, you're going to fight this battle on Tuesday, right? Tomorrow, I know who you're going to be with. You're going to be with your family. Maybe they're worse, right? You're going to be with the family tomorrow. Uh-oh, we've got to deal with that. You're going to face it. You're going to be reminded of the struggle. And you're going to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Can this actually satisfy me? Because even God's good even God's good gifts are not meant to, right, cause us to look to them for value or worth or meaning because he's the only source of lasting satisfaction. The sooner we embrace that, the less heartache we'll experience spiritually. That's guaranteed. Saying it another way, we can't have too much of God. You can't drink from the fountain too much. You know where I got that? My friend Johnny Calvin. He wrote that to King Francis I, Right back in the mid 1500s, he wrote his first edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which was his summary of this is what the Bible teaches. Right, it's outstanding reading. But he wrote a big introduction to the King of France, who was committed to rooting out that kind of thinking out of France. He was a committed Roman Catholic. He had wanted nothing to do with the the the, the resurgence of Bible translation or biblical truth. He didn't want any of that. He just wanted he didn't want it. Right. So Calvin dedicated this theological work to King Francis. And this is what he said in the dedication in one part. It's very interesting. He said, no one is blamed for drinking too much of the fountain of living water. (laughs) He says, how can you argue with this? We're giving you more God here, Francis. We're we're giving you more access to the fountain in the scriptures. We're giving you more access to the soul-satisfying truths of the gospel. Nobody is blamed for drinking too much of the fountain of living water. On the contrary, Those are severely reprimanded for digging for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He says there is a a warning here. The warning is when we're running away from God to something else. I don't know where your battle is today, but I know this. God is today what Jeremiah said he was so long ago. He is the fountain of living water. And what Jesus said in John 7, it stands today. If you're thirsty, come to him and drink and be satisfied. Because we find value not in our performance, not in our achievements, not in our people's opinion of us. We can only find value in God who has proven his love for us and has proven our worth in him. So let's be people who drink from the fountain. Would you pray with me and let's ask God to help us. Lord, we thank you for this passage here in Jeremiah where we are reminded of really the anatomy of sin in many ways, Lord, that there are two steps to idolatry. The first step is rejecting you, and that second step of then replacing you with something else, something that is useless spiritually and that it cannot provide for our needs. Lord, broken cisterns, and we we would confess that we often are busy digging them. So help us, Lord, to to put those shovels down. Help us to look to you as the fountain of living water who provides for our needs. Lord Jesus, help us to see that in your provision, we are forgiven. We are declared clean. Our guilt and our shame is removed. And Lord, we are now enabled to function and live as a part of your family. Lord, help us to see what it looks like to think rightly about our pursuits in life all the while being satisfied, not by them, but by you. Lord, I pray for those who are here who are struggling today. They know where their struggle is. Lord, I pray for those here who may not be aware of their struggle. I pray that your spirit would give them wisdom and insight to know where it is that they may be digging these broken cisterns. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to be satisfied in you, to drink from the fountain, to see your greatness, and Lord, to be sustained by it to come to you in our times of need, Lord, and to recognize that you are not just all-powerful, but that you are good. You have made provision for us so that we can be at peace and at rest in you. Lord, help us to experience that today by faith in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.